It is always fun to check in with Ken Albala. His new book, The Great Gelatin Revival, Savory Aspects, Jiggly Shots, and Outrageous Desserts, is more than fun. It's jam-packed with gelatin history, traditional and new recipes, and delightful pictures and writing. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Ken Albala. It's hard to describe Ken. He's a professor of history at the University of the Pacific. He is the author of many, many books, videos, reference works, and much more. He's also a talented ceramicist and woodcarver. And on top of all this, he seems to always be having fun. He's written a great new book called The Great Gelatin Revival. And we're happy to have you back, Ken. Thank you for having me. So why did you write this book? Well, I said in the intro, and I was not being facetious, that topics find me, I don't find them. And this was literally a dare. (laughs) It was a friend (laughs) on Facebook who said, I think you ought to go look at this site, uh, this Facebook group called Show Me Your Aspects. And just from that name alone, I said, no, I'm not looking at that. <laughs> it sounds dirty for one. And I thought, I don't know, eventually I just took a look and it was really interesting and there was gelatin there. And I said, maybe I'll make one just for kicks. And I remembered specifically the first one I made was with Uzo and feta cheese and olives and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was like just a really interesting cocktail. They're the things you would have eaten, you know, sure. side by side anyway. Mm-hmm. They were all together in one bite. And I thought, this is a really good idea. It's not a jello shot like the terrible ones you had in college right, that are right. ever clear and lime jello, which I hate. <laughs> and um, and I thought, just think of all the cocktails that could go in this and types of wine. And then I just got hooked and got deeper into it. And I started doing it every day. Mm-hmm. And eventually after a month or so, I thought I just should get a book out of this because I'm doing it anyway. And <laughs> what was amazing is the people there were really just delightful and lovely. And they gave me great feedback and encouragement. It was like having the ideal audience to play with ideas. And they just, they were, they were perfect for the, you know, and, and so the book is really dedicated to them. Yeah, it, it's a really fun book. And the pictures are just fabulous. I love the octopus and all of that. I can tell they were yours. Absolutely. But, um, you know, the thing is, they were taken on my phone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know how to use a real camera. And I hate, and I own one. And it just, it's okay. But the, the phone takes better pictures. It just, you know, once you get the lighting right, it's like, there's nothing to it. You can. Right, you can right. It. Yeah. It's easy. Well, one of the things that I, I, it made me think about when I was reading is that today, no one really makes red beans and rice or doesn't make their red beans actually with a ham bone. And they usually use sausage or something like that. And because I grew up eating it made flavored with a ham bone, 
it had a different texture than red beans have today. And I kept thinking about that all the time I was reading your book because I thought, yes, gelatin. <laughs> and uh, it's- it, Here's it's the thing, it happens naturally. Yes. It, gelatin is is not a, an invention of any particular time. If you just boil bones with cartilage and nubbly bits, mm -hmm. you get gelatin that people, that gives you in sauces that lovely mouthfeel without having to add a lot of fat really. Right. And I think that we eat it all the time without noticing it. I mean, mm -hmm. it goes into manufactured goods. It goes, it's a stabilizer in pastries and things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who say, oh, I never go near Jello, I never touch it. Well, you're eating it all the time without, right. without knowing, unless you're vegetarian and, you know, make a conscious choice to avoid right. it. But it's, it's in bones and uh, especially cartilage, you know, and, and the skin collagen is what we're talking about. If you have the patience to cook it, it's not really not hard to do. You just leave it there. You turn turn on the stove and let it go. There's nothing right. to it. <laughs> well, I, I also grew up eating dough glace and we still eat hogshead cheese here in New Orleans all the time. And uh, we make um, something that we call shrimp mold or crab mold or crawfish mold. Yeah. It's really always molded in a lobster shaped mold. So it has nothing to do with the actual shape of the mold. Or sometimes they'll put it in a, one of those curved fish molds, but right, usually, right. It, but it's always held together with gelatin. And sure. those are remnants of magnificent, really 19th century creations. In the, in the 19th century, it was the height of fashion. So, you know, Antoine's would, would certainly have had jello molds that were considered to be the hardest thing, not because the jello itself is hard, it's because you need the mold, you need to clarify your jello, you need to color it, flavor it, add beautiful wine, and then get it to hold up, which is right. the, you know, the hardest part is the, yes. the architecture of it. And that yes. really starts with Carême, you know, the, the French, the mm -hmm. great French chef, um, mm -hmm. that era of the, the early Victorian era, when they were really into hyper decoration of food, bright colors, and they didn't care if it came from copper or, you know, <laughs> lead or whatever, you know, it was just perfectly fine. And right. they, were, they were, you know, trusted science. I, th I think that, that, you know, fundamentally periods that are pro-jello or gelatin, I should say, um, are also those that trust science and that, and that think that artificiality in food is a really good thing. If you can show off your skill and expertise and difficulty, then that's a great thing. It's very different than those periods where you want honest, homemade, traditional, simple yeah. fare that's, you know, earthy and, and you know, do it yourself. They're yeah. very different, different aesthetics, different approaches to food. Well, uh, certainly, for example, hogshead cheese, which was still eaten down here every day, all the time, is always put into like a loaf mold or something that is very utilitarian. It's never put into anything decorative. You know, it's just like, we eat this. You know, this is just to eat, you know, because it tastes right. good. Yeah. It's not there to be. You can take the exact same thing. And if you have the time to clarify your gelatin with like, it's done the same way as stock, you know, just an egg mm -hmm. raft mm -hmm. and strain it and add a nice wine, presumably, you can come up with a really elegant aspect. You just have to cut those pieces into nice shapes and pour over the, the clear gelatin and put it in a beautiful mold. You've got something magnificent, but does it taste better? Not really. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> thing. And it still hogs it. I mean, it, you know, think of, think of head cheese in general, uh -huh. which in Eastern Europe, they've never forgotten about. It's still uh -huh. there. You know, uh -huh. kolodets or a pcha in Yiddish cooking, 
and head cheeses in in um, not just in Germany, in Italy also. They have they have a uh -huh. di testa, you know, those things, uh -huh. and they they're not fancy at all. They're they're completely traditional, ordinary ways to use up the the feet and the skin and the the you know connective tissue. Right. It's only when you you have someone who has tons of time and <laughs> leisure to run a restaurant or serve at court that you get really really elegant aspects right. that are being presented. Right, yeah. And well, they go back much further than people think. You know, we assume that this is the invention of the Jello company or maybe goes back to the 19th century, but but recipes for them are medieval. I mean, all medieval cookbooks have recipes for, and the word gelatin is a late Latin medieval word that basically means little ice, because jello means ice, gelu in Latin. And uh, this means a little, and it sort of, it sort of looks like ice. I mean, you can imagine the first generation that looked yeah. at this stuff and said, what is this? How does this work? It's magical. Right. And you color it and perfume it and flavor it magnificently. I, you know, people, people think, people have this image of Henry VIII as being, you know, from Charles Lawton, eating a big turkey leg right. and throwing right. it behind right. his leg, whatever, right. throwing it behind his back. His favorite was gelatin colored blue with with turnsole and just pictured him with this delicate little spoon you know <laughs> eating gelatin it's, a, it's such a clash of concepts because we think right. of gelatin is 1950s right uh, but but it was the totally fashionable uh in the in the early renaissance well do you think that jello actually became a lot more um Popular also because you all, all of a sudden had refrigerators, electric refrigerators. Yeah, well, so this was partly the ploy of the Jello company and Knox also and all the other companies mm -hmm. that they said this was once only the preserve of the elite and wealthy. And now it's being democratized because we're selling it to you in a packet and selling convenience and you know, in fact, there's a wonderful Maxfield Parrish um, ad. You know, Maxfield Parrish was the, just this great illustrator. Mm -hmm. Did a Jello ad where he shows the king and queen, and and I think the statement is something like, you know, only the king and queen can have Jello. And then the next picture is these colonial bumpkins kind of eating Jello, implying that ordinary Americans can now enjoy it. But you are absolutely right. It's partly the gelatin powder which is an invention of the mid 19th century and sheets also, which we don't only really professional kitchens use them, but they're the same thing. Um, and, and refrigeration, absolutely. So you can make it any season, you know, right. you wouldn't make a gelatin in the summer <laughs> because right. it would just, right. you know, it, even if you had a cold storage, you brought it out into the heat, it, it would melt. It would just melt. So, yeah. so to some extent it is true that it becomes more popular and much, much easier, but it's not that ordinary people weren't eating it before. They were just eating the, the, the head cheese guy. Right, you know, right. Guy, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Um, but that but that was their selling point. And and there, I think it's a study in brilliant early 20th century advertising. If you look at what the Jell-O company did, they handed out Jell-O molds to immigrants in Ellis Island. And they said, this is what Americans eat. You you have to learn how to make a Jell-O. And here's here's your first packet for free. And they get them addicted that way. <laughs> and it's and it's, you know, keep up with the Joneses and literally right, the Joneses right, Americans. Right. That um people thought this was the way to assimilate and and it was cheap. And for women who perhaps didn't know how to cook, this in a sense kind of de-skilled de them, right? Because they never right. learned how to make it from scratch. And they just said, Why would I ever do that when I have a packet and it will take me 10 minutes? 
you know, I'm not going to spend an hour, the 10 hours looking over it in the kitchen. And right. even though they might have been there anyway in the kitchen for 10 hours, but but this was um, selling convenience. And I think that whole generation post, post-depression, I mean, my mother's era, um, never would in a million years make a stock or a gelatin from scratch. It just didn't, it was disgusting. And it was something their mothers did. They didn't want to do it. Right. And so, you know, my, my mother made the kind of, well, it was, it was it was when they were on Weight Watchers, really. And it was flavored with saccharin and it was artificially colored and came and in these like layers yes. yeah. in, a, in a parfait glass. And this is what my parents gave me for dessert when I was young. And I think, I swear, it may be why I'm still really averse to the whole idea of dessert. After a meal, the last thing I want to eat is like cake or, or ugh, something sweet. It just doesn't, doesn't appeal to me. I'd, I'd rather just end, right? So, but anyway, I, I told my mother at one point when I was very young, um, I know, I figured out where gelatin comes from. It's calves feet and I'm not eating it ever again. And it was a great ploy because I got out of eating those <laughs> things and I told her, just don't make one for me, save them for yourself. And I think I must've gone the majority of my life never going near jello until, you know, a few years ago when I started that book. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of like, like a, you know, a wild perverse experiment for me because I was really unfamiliar with it, starting absolute scratch. I'd never even made a jello before. And then suddenly I was going into this, these extravagant, bizarre, you know, futuristic things while also studying the history and learning that they're nothing new, that it's, that it was really the fifties that kind of ruined them by adding, you know, um, salad ingredients and, uh, you know, uh, hot dogs and and, and, and also and also just the artificial ingredients and and that I mean it right. doesn't taste right you know it right. has that, that artificial taste right well of course I mean if you put bad ingredients in you're gonna get bad ingredients out I mean right. you know that, yes. that's not a surprise I think I don't think good ingredients don't necessarily guarantee a great combination in the end you can mess <laughs> them up I have done many times but I think if you're using a really good cocktail. Um, a Sazerac, by the way, is a beautiful thing in jello form. And, uh -huh. I, and I have done that. I think it's in the book, actually. I can't remember what I paired it with. It was some, something remarkable. Um, it may have been like a Cajun shrimp or some, something like that. Uh -huh. And if it's not in this cookbook, it's in the next one that I just, just did. Um, I don't think it's not in here. No. Not Sazerac. Well, I think it's in the next one, but it's something with Sazerac. Anyway, okay. you know, a good cocktail makes a fabulous jello. The only difference is that when you drink a cocktail, it goes over your tongue and it's cold and you don't really taste it very much. It's like right. the alcohol just kind of slides down and you get the other flavors first. Uh -huh. Jello you chew on and it actually seeps into your taste buds and you taste this hot kind of alcohol that even in a normal cocktail is overwhelming. Um, so I have found you have to compensate by adding more sugar, more acid, more mm -hmm. other flavors to kind of get over that that sort of rawness um once once you pass about i would say about 20 20 alcohol like port is still perfectly lovely uh -huh. on its own in jello uh -huh. form madeira is great <laughs> you know sake yeah. is fabulous yeah. but after that you really need to rebalance and, mm -hmm. and of course, mm -hmm. the alcohol makes the um, bonds and the gelatin weaker so you have to add more gelatin to, to keep it solid so there's just weird things like that that i figured out just by experimenting era? yeah exactly exactly right um and some of them fell apart and some of them were so chewy that they were like gummy bears <laughs> you know which is um 
which is fine. And there's there's also the other thing that people don't realize is that there were many other different forms of gelatin in the, in the past. There was um, isinglass, which is the swim bladder of a sturgeon. So it's this little little sort of bag in the back of the sturgeon that fills up with air and helps it float. Mm-hmm. And it's pure collagen. You just you literally dissolve it in hot water. And it I, I found this stuff online, believe it or not, and made it. And it's it was instant. And I think the reason that the the stuff that's I mean our Jello today is the byproduct of the slaw, you know cat um, pig right. industry pork industry right. and I think sturgeon just became so expensive and difficult and rare that they said that we're not using this anymore and the same with heart's horn it's it's literally the horns on a young deer you can just grate into hot water and it dissolves like gelatin so there were so there were things that were practically instant gelatin in the past that is that even by the 18th century isinglass is the standard form of gelatin so. But, but I think that the wherever you see a gelatin company is almost always in stockyards or, or places. I mean, in New York City, it's it's right on. It was off Twenty Third Street, and I used to work there, so it was kind of the the um, the uh, this is C- Cooper, like of Cooper Union and Cooper, mm-hmm. you know, the whole Cooper Square, the whole his big name in New York City um, started because they had there were slaughterhouses there, and they had pork and they got they bought all the skins and the and the feet cheap and it was a perfect place to start a gelatin factory and what's interesting is he had no interest in it he invented it the powder gelatin and then just sort of said oh, i have other things to invent and went on to something else but other companies obviously picked up on it right but mid-19th century there's you know instant gelatin surprisingly enough so he's kind of like you he gets excited about it gets really deep into it, invents it, does all of that, and then says, okay, now it's time for something else. <laughs> kind of, yes. Well, you know, Isaiah Berlin once said there are two types of people. He was referring to Martin Luther and John Calvin, actually. But he said that Luther was a hedgehog. He had one idea, stuck to it, did it his whole life, never did anything else, and that was it. Uh-huh. And Calvin was a fox. He went all over. He got interested in one thing and then talked about something else and then was and was prolific, prolific writer. Um, brilliant writer, actually, <laughs> even though you might not like it as his ideas. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess I'm <laughs> intellectually a fox. And, you know, and sometimes I I question myself and I certainly did on the gelatin book. Is this going to be academically rigorous enough? Is this going to be yeah. a serious book? But how do I keep it fun if I'm you know, writing a history. And I think I managed to straddle that line, or at least there's enough history in there that's light. And then there's enough craziness that it'll be fun for a general reader. But it's it's University of Illinois Press. It was actually peer reviewed, which is bizarre. I mean, it took forever during the pandemic, but still, like if I if you showed this to someone and said, do you know how this book was made? I think they would be perplexed that some other scholar got this thing and said, what the hell is this, you know? Well, when you when you first started, before you were turning it into a book, were you very meticulous about keeping the records of everything you did uh, so that you could turn it into a recipe? Or um, did that come later, only after you decided to make it into a book? No, I did keep a journal. Um, and what's really interesting is, is that I wanted to record not just the recipe but the image of it like you know what it looked like so so later when i go back i can link up the picture with the recipe Recipe. so i kept a i illustrated a journal and there's one of those illustrations is in the book 
it's actually my hand-drawn picture of the thing that that looks exactly like all the others, but it's got my scribblings and notes all over it. And I kind of, you know, I toyed for a brief moment with just using the illustrations because they're just as cool as the, as mm -hmm. the photographs. And, and I didn't in the end, just because I think, you know, color images work really nicely. Um, well, and but, there's something... but I did, I did think consciously, save everything, make right. sure you record. And in fact, the book that I did after it um, is the very first time I did a cookbook in which I measured every single ingredient. I had the times exact. I tested them several times, and it was it was it was a drag actually. Yeah, honestly, very tedious. Yeah. I mean, I like you know cooking a recipe and saying that worked, and I'll tell you how I did it. And and you know if it's if I say cook it 15 minutes or 20, I I don't know what it was, you know. Yeah. But yeah. this one I I did. It's going to be called Opulent Nosh. University of Alabama Press is doing it, uh -huh. and um, it's got a lot of it was supposed to be a breakfast book and all the agents told me no one's going to buy a book on breakfast because everyone eats what they eat for breakfast and that it, we will not sell it. Uh -huh. And I said, okay, I'll take the word breakfast out <laughs> and call it something else. And I don't eat things that are like ordinary people eat for breakfast. So I think that it, it, it well, it did work. Um, and it's um, going into production right now, in fact, you know, January. So um, but it was, but it was, it is tedious. And I have a much greater respect for cookbook authors who test and retest and have other people test things out. It's not the way I cook. It's not, I don't like following recipes that way. And I don't certainly don't like writing that way, but I think it will work as a cookbook. I think people will be able to do exactly what I did and, and well, measure it out. That's good. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I've only written one cookbook. And the reason I hadn't written one before is because I didn't want to have to measure anything and <laughs> right. come up with a recipe that, you know, you could follow like a chemistry experiment. Right. And, um, but I finally decided that I wrote this book because I was writing it for my children to remember recipes from my grandmother and all of that mm. sort of thing. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> Right. But your grandmother, I'm sure, didn't measure anything. You oh, had to figure that out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, maybe no, even notoriously, I did a couple of cookbooks years a decade ago or more um, that have no measurements whatsoever and no uh, cooking times. And no, they're written like old recipes. And that was the whole point is to show people you don't need to measure unless you're really cooking a cake or cookies and, the you know, a quarter teaspoon of something is going to make a difference. If you're making right. a stew, throw it in the pot. It doesn't matter. If you're making a turkey, throw it in there. Take the temperature. When it's done, you're done. You know, yeah. you can't, yeah. you can't specify time like that. Right. So, so I think it actually, it does disservice to people who really want to learn how to cook. If they're always following the recipe to the letter mm -hmm. and something goes wrong, they're lost. It's like, it's like driving with a GPS device. You know, if you suddenly, you know, don't know where you are and the GPS goes out, you're, you're lost. You're really lost. Yeah. With, with cooking, you kind of need to feel what you're doing and understand that, oh, this needs a little more oregano because I just tasted it and it doesn't taste, it's not strong enough. So um, so I think 90% of recipes should just be, you should wing it. Well, and I also think that, you know, every tomato tastes different. Every potato has a different Absolutely amount of starch. So. And, and so, so there's really almost... Um, a disservice in the recipe that's so precise without telling you how to adjust for the flavor you want based on the fact that food doesn't ever taste the same 
twice. This is absolutely right. And a friend of mine uh, has a big uh, beef about saying salt to taste. But how could you possibly specify how much some salt someone else wants in a recipe? I like a whole lot of salt. If you follow my directions, you're going to get, it's going to be too salty. And if the ingredients are a little bland, of course you want to use more salt. Salt to taste is the only responsible thing to do. Uh, If you just say, add, uh, you know, six eighths of a teaspoon of salt. That's crazy. I don't want to be sitting there measuring that out in my kitchen. And then, and then try to convert that to, to, uh, you know, metric. That's, it's absolutely insane. Uh, One, one book I did, the publisher insisted that I include metric. And so I had like, you know, 0.000145 grams for one recipe, just, just to be annoying. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a pinch. You'd go like this. Right. Well, and also if you're throwing Parmesan in, or if you're putting in anchovies or uh, fish sauce or any of those kinds of things, they all have salt in them and they're already, so you never know what it's going to taste like ahead of time. So you right. have to say salt to taste. I mean, yeah. and the ingredients are sometimes blander and sometimes they're strongly flavored and you don't want as much salt. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, the only responsible thing to do is, is say, yeah. you know, put in what you want and, and you should learn what you like. Like I don't, I, when someone says, oh, I oversalted this. I do it every now and then because I'm not paying attention, but uh-huh. you should never have to oversalt something. You, you taste as you go along. And I, I think it's, yeah. you know, cooking, cooking is, should be a creative act. And I think that this is, well, let me get back to Jello on this very okay. note. Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that what Jello lends itself to is every single flavor on earth can go into a gelatin form. And that's what makes it so much fun. And you can uh-huh. combine things in ways that you would not um, ever think possible. Um, the other day I put gelatin on a sandwich. I just melted it, poured it over, let it set, and it stuck all the ingredients. I had like a sauerkraut and um, mm. some pate on a, it sort of tasted like a banh mi in the end, but it was, but it was just like, I don't know what made me think of this it was Madeira Jello, and it just solidified and was this nice chewiness inside. I would you would never think of making a Jello sandwich because it yeah. sounds so bizarre, yeah. but it like really worked nicely. Um, and that's that's the joy of Jello is that it's the most malleable, literally malleable substance on earth that can you can do anything with. Right now, see that reminds me also of a hogshead cheese sandwich that I had and it was hot outside and um, it started to melt and ooze into the bread. And then I put it back in the refrigerator and then, you know, ate it after I took it out of the refrigerator. It's the same sort of thing. I just, you know, but it never occurred to me to make it that way. (laughs) I love you can take leftovers and, and, you know, if you have a gelatin unflavored powder, mm-hmm. it takes two minutes to just mix it up with a little, you you know, dissolve the gelatin in cold liquid mm-hmm. and the hot liquid. Mm-hmm. And then you can pour that over every anything. And it, and it was a fashionable thing to do. Gosh, you know, even Julia Child has an episode where she's doing it with duck. She, she made a duck and pours the jello over it. And, and it's, it looks totally grotesque, but, 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 it's, but it was like one of those fashionable things to do. Um, you know, and 
I think, why not? And I, I tried playing around for a while. This was actually after the book was written with taking little hors d'oeuvres. So imagine like, you know, a canapé on toast or something with a lot of really complicated ingredients all over it. And I, this is stuff I posted on Facebook and pouring jello to keep it all there so that when someone picks it up, it's not going to fly all over the place. And you have this jello that kind of acts as the glue, literally the glue to, to the whole thing. Right. So that was, you know, kind of, I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere, but I wouldn't be surprised if 19th century people, well, like oufangele is, is essentially that. Right. You know, it's eggs. Right. So they don't go all over the place. They're set in gelatin. Wow. Wow. I love that. So, all right. We've, we've kind of looked at this. You're telling us what you're planning on doing, um, your new book, but you're, you're finished with it, right? Your part is finished. Um, with this with your new book the opulent nosh book is yes opulent. i finished that about a year okay. ago actually. so okay. so what are you working on now so this i had a sabbatical and i know you're supposed to do very important things on your sabbatical and usually i do knock out a book uh, or sometimes two even um but i figured i have so many in the pipeline now that i'm not going to feel guilty i taught myself how to carve spoons and and this was another completely accidental thing i have a couple of olive trees in the front yard and I had to trim them because they were just extending over the, the sidewalk. So I had to take off a branch. And I thought, you know, this is really nice wood. Let me see how this carves. And I had no idea what I was doing and uh -huh. didn't have the right tools or anything. Uh -huh. And then I thought, let me get some tools, you know, a set of little carving tools and went for about a month and then finally realized, oh, you're supposed to have an ax too. And oh, you're supposed to do that. And so it was watching YouTube really that, that taught me some fabulous, fabulous videos there. And, um, you know, for the first several months had the most horrific blisters and cut myself all the time and aches that were unfathomably <laughs> awful. <laughs> and, um, and I think that the, eventually your hands just get stronger and you learn how the wood would work so you don't split it or, right. or carve through the bowl of the you know, spoon and things like that. So I make one pretty much every day. And I've, I've done over well over 100 now um, since I started. And my idea is that people often put, if you go to a high-end restaurant, you see sometimes someone will make a fabulous food, mm -hmm. put it on a, on a dish that's made to hold that food and then standard cutlery, you know, usually goes with it. Or some, once in a while, if you go to, um, you know, um, Grant Ackett's <laughs> restaurants in right. Chicago, maybe you'll find the strange cutlery and things, but that's the only place you see it. Or in a traditional Japanese restaurant, sometimes they will match the pottery with the food with utensils. But why not do this all the time? Why not just expand it? And I've got a pottery studio right beneath where I'm sitting now. And I've been doing that for years and years. Um, and I thought, why not make the food to go in the bowl and make the spoon to serve it with? And it just seems so logical <laughs> that why has no one ever done this? You know, I don't want to really write a how-to book because I'm not certainly not an expert in any of those three. But I think that the combination, I could write a very interesting craft aesthetic book about uh -huh. why this is why you should just get started and start making stuff because, you know, I mean, the, the, the soullessness of mass produced garbage and plastic, I think it has been, people have been writing about that for years. Right. And what makes craft a beautiful expression of your creativity and a wonderful way to spend time and not create waste, honestly, mm -hmm. in plastic and things, but just not to have ugliness around you. Um, I think that making things yourself or buying them from people who, who know how to make these 
is is um, something that people need to be reminded of a lot and mm-hmm. and told and and sometimes even just nudged to try it themselves. And the you know it's so it's more uh, an inspirational book. I hope and I'm hoping a trade press will want to buy it. I don't know you know someone who does craft you know kind of, there there are lots of books like that out there. So I'm, I just need to figure out which publishers right. want it. Right. But you've actually started right. You've been writing it. I've got about 10,000 words written. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so that's, okay. it's a start, that's you know, start, um, yeah. unfortunately I'm under contract to write a book about aphrodisiacs <laughs> and, and that's been for many years. And this morning, literally this morning, the publisher said, you have to tell me one way or the other. Now, are you going to do this? And part of me doesn't want to, but, but I have, kind of have to, I have yeah. to do it. Well, it's, it's a long, long story, but, but actually Alan Davidson, you know, who founded the uh-huh, whole Oxford uh-huh, Symposium uh-huh. and wrote the Companion to Food. Um, we had a conversation once and I said, you know, I wrote this article on aphrodisiacs in the Renaissance and this is 30 years ago, or 25 years ago, and I don't know what to do with it. And he said, you write this book, you have to write it because, and he told me this, he was absolutely right. Every single thing written about aphrodisiacs is nonsense. Um, and it is, it, it, it's just complete made up junk. So that's the hard part is that the secondary literature is terrible uh-huh. and the primary literature is veiled. It's not always there out in the open. Here's what you eat to, right, and, yeah. you know, the medical right. literature is there that I know. Uh-huh. Oddly enough in the religious literature, it's often don't eat this because you don't want to get aroused. <laughs> so you don't have this nice wine or this meat, which is going to create, you know, build up nutrients in your body and right. make you stimulate your libido. Um, and there's right. a very long logic to this. Not It wasn't just like, oh, cucumbers are aphrodisiacs because yeah, they're right, of course. much it's more complicated too, than that. Yeah, it's, it's, and so yeah. that's what I think I can write. I just have to get a whole book out of it now. And, and it went through many iterations. I had a, a potential co-author who was going to write the second half and that didn't work out. And so I, um, so I said to the publisher, can I just do the antiquity to the enlightenment? If I do like you know, Galen to Casanova or something like that, that's more manageable for me because I just, modern science, <laughs> nothing of and yeah. it doesn't yeah. interest me, frankly. So right. so, I, so I, this morning I said, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> so I have six months. So that's going to, that's going to. That's going to consume you for a while. Yes. Yeah. Well, at least in, until next summer. Yeah. 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 Well, Ken, I want to thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. It always is. It and, is. Agreed. Um, and and I, I really want to recommend that people read The Great Gelatin Revival and then cook from it and be inspired by it. Not just cook from it exactly, but be inspired by it. That's the idea. That's the idea. Or go out, get your favorite cocktail, make it in jello form and whatever snack you're eating, throw it in there. See what happens. Oh, that's a good, that's <laughs> a good be, suggestion. You'll be delighted and surprised. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, great, great talking to you. Great talking to Ciao. you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.